My friends, welcome to Hustle Like You Broke. Still in a bit of suspended animation, a couple days removed from what I believe to be the most important election day in modern American history. And so far, we do not have a clear winner. Uh, There is a path to victory on both sides. There is a chance by the time we air tomorrow that the election will be called one way or the other, which does not necessarily mean we will know whether or not we will have a new president. There is always due process. Due process has never really played out in this country before. For people who don't know, each time a presidential candidate has become the obvious loser in past history, that person has conceded, which allows, which basically negates what follows, which is the certification of the votes and then the Electoral College casting their votes, which is a process that unfolds in, G- in December and January. There has been talk by the current administration that if he appears to be losing, he may not concede, which again means there could be an extended period where we don't quite know exactly way, the way this is going to go. But again, by the time we are tomorrow, there is a chance we will have an indication of where things are headed. Until then, we are actually very privileged today to be uh, welcoming one of the most important voices in the concert industry today, Mr. Michael Strickland, owner of Bandit Lights and a very active voice on Capitol Hill. But before we get to him, I would, of course, be remiss to leave out three of my favorite people, who I've had the privilege of sharing the mic every week on this podcast, the incomparable Christine Dallas. How are you today, Dallas? I'm hanging in there, Mr. Matt. Hanging in there. And I know you voted early. Do we know that your vote has counted yet? Yeah, because I was able to go to a polling station and I watched it go through the machine. I was very pleased to see that happen. So well, you know, I know I'm in. I'm good. Except, for, of course, I'm in Miami-Dade County. And many <laughs> will know that that's in Florida. And that knows that that's always a fun state to be in at this yeah, time of year. Bit, bit of a bone to pick there, of course, because <laughs> it would seem, based on demographics that Florida should be more of a left-leaning state, but uh, evidently not because it would appear Trump is going to carry the state this year by a greater margin than he did four years ago, which surprised me slightly, but so be it. There it is. They did some very effective campaigning, let me tell you. Their commercials were quite amazing. (laughs) Well, also joining us today, my brother from another mother, Mr. Kyle Hamilton. Brother Hamilton, what's going on? Good evening. Just enjoying a nice, balanced Thursday. Staying out of trouble, shooting straight. Waiting to see what the news says. Sounds like you've been taking a little bit about those smooth jazz or something uh, with the tone of your... Very. Uh, <laughs> what am I trying to say? Here? I don't know. 
I can't call it. You, you went Barry left. White. He's been, been listen, listening to a little Sunday night slow jams this Barry morning White or something there. like that. Sunday night slow jams. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> On a Thursday. And of course, my other brother from another mother, my good brother Banks. What's going on, brother Banks? How's it going? How's it going? It's hot. <laughs> Well, it's not very hot here. Up in the Northeast, we actually are into the 60s today. Quite happy with that. We were down in the 40s for a couple days. We had snow last week. I know none of you live in places where it snows, but that's a fact of life here. Last year, we got a grand total of five inches over the entire winter, which was a low for my life, as I recall. And we already got three inches this year before the end of October, so... There it is. Anyway, in the news this week, as you've seen, in spite of what the current administration has been saying, even post-election day, we are seeing news reports that COVID cases are still going up. And uh, that doesn't spell good news for the rest of us getting back to work anytime quickly. As you know, I always peruse Polestar for signs of life for signs of live events. And of course, most of what we see is the realignment of agencies, furloughs, etc. virtual this, little drive in that. But one artist has come up for the second time in recent months for a live event. You would think, and I promoted a small tour with this artist some years ago, so I have a personal affinity for this artist as a human, although we questioned Chase Rice back in June when he had a club show in Nashville that was out of control. And here we have him announcing a show in Kentucky, yet again, Kentucky. Remember last week, we talked about a show, Three Six Six Mafia at Rupp (laughs) Arena being announced in December. Well, now we have Chase Rice announcing a show at the Owensboro Sports Center. Now, he says it will be distance. He says it will be limited capacity. I just, you know, it's like, didn't you learn your lesson the first time, Chase? Please, please be part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And that's that's all I'm going to say about that. I, I want to take it as a positive sign of life shows on the horizon, but come on now, indoor shows. No. Right now, before the end of this year? No. Are you serious? I went to a movie yesterday. Oh. What? Did you? What? Orange the, County? Saw The Tenant. How many people Orange were County? in the space? No, Did actually, you rent out in, the whole movie theater, Kyle? No, they're doing the rent. <laughs> they, they are doing rental of the theater. Yeah. But no, actually, I went in Marietta. I, I, where uh, I am. Uh, but, okay. um, uh, it was, uh, including me, there were eight people in there. Wow. And how- Interesting. Amazing. Interesting. It felt so good to sit back and just watch I want to see Tenet, too. It was a great movie, too. That's bold, too. I, I appreciate you you putting your life at risk to, just no, to see a movie. No, that really says I'm something. Good. I'm, a <laughs> I'm good. All right. All right. All right. Well, as I said, the race is still tight and yet to be called as of today, recording on November 5. But for those who don't know, one of the contenders did have the cojones to concede. And of course, I'm talking about Kanye West. (laughs) 
That wasn't. He didn't concede. He got. 50, come on, come votes. on. His dumbass got fifty thousand votes. Hey, That's hey, hey, hey. Six, now, 60, ten 60, out of Tennessee, okay, Mr. Tens. Strickland. How did that happen? Tennessee. Ten thousand in yeah, Tennessee blew my mind. Yeah. Well, listen, listen, listen. Before you make light, I know everybody thought his candidacy was a joke. I'm just going to say this. I thought it was a distraction. That's all it was. And I thought it. And, and I thought it was a distraction that was kind of put in play by some, you know, right-leaning folk who who wanted to create spectacle. I, I made jokes with a couple friends that perhaps there was some to-do between Trump's and Kris Jenner, Kardashian clan trying to, you know, drum up publicity. But I, I, I do want to say this, in spite of the fact that we dismiss this man for being chemically unbalanced, potentially delusional. I worked for it. I'm glad. <laughs> hold on. Well, okay. All but all I'm saying is I'm glad he did something. And I think our guest today might agree that given the choice of doing something or doing nothing, the fact that he did something is to be admired. And we have talked at length about the number of artists, and by the number, I mean the very small number of artists who have spoken out at any point in the past year. Mm. We're talking about whether it's about the president, whether it's about the pandemic, mm. whether it's about or Black Lives cruise. Matter, racism in America, etc. Poor touring crews that aren't working right now. His ass can't make up his mind over a motherfucking set. <laughs> How can he govern the world? <laughs> Fuck out of here. He can't even finish a damn tour without talking about he's tired. Fuck out of here. He, he addressed all that recently. And I, I think you should watch. It's pretty interesting. His was that, the, was that the Rogan interview? That's the Rogan thing. But again, it's all for show. His he He's a very smart individual. All the shit he does is for show. It's all for spectacle. It's all for shock value. He don't, He didn't have no breakdown. He didn't have any of that shit. It's all just to get press. When he feels like he doesn't have enough press, he want to make some noise, do some old fuck shit. He is fine, but he wasted everybody's time. Ego play or otherwise, <laughs> he opened up his mouth and he decided to do something. He called attention to the fact that at least we had a presidential election this year, which is more than a lot of artists have done. So again, for me, I appreciate his... Speaking up in whatever form or fashion, I appreciate his willingness to concede. Yes, he was not going to win. Neither was Joe Jorgensen. And yet she stole tens of thousands of votes in states that, as we're seeing, some of these states are coming down to the wire. We got a half dozen states that are going to be decided by a five figure margin or less. And this woman I mean, what kind of white privilege do you need to have to be voting for a third-party candidate in this election? Are you fucking kidding me? That's <laughs> all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Moving on, speaking of politics, but before we really dive into his political career, I already said today, we have Michael Strickland joining us on the program. This is a man who has circulated an email to a growing number of people, an email list about what's going on in the industry in Capitol Hill. He has become a leading voice for this business. But before his efforts on Capitol Hill, this is a man who started Bandit Lights, as I understand it, when he was in junior high school, 12 years 
old, 12 years old. Now, we hear about people like Mark Cuban talking about when he was 12 years old, he was going door to door selling anything he could find to sell. He had that entrepreneurial spirit. Michael Strickland starts a lighting company, 12 years old. By the time he is in college, he is the production manager for Kenny Rogers, one of the biggest artists in the world at the time. He's in college. This is crazy. Today, 40-some years later, he, he's worked with a who's who in the industry. It's not even worth naming names. I mean, it's it's everyone. It's anyone. It, he's won accolades at the local level, the city level, the state level, the national level. They have offices across the globe, including four here in the United States, plus London, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, the list of philanthropy, the the for awards, let's just say this year, this year, he won the Parnelli Lifetime Visionary Award. Kudos for that. His bio for people that can't see me, because none of you can see me, and trust me, you're better off not seeing me. But his bio is five pages long. This this is, I mean, talk about making me feel like I haven't done this in my career. Got some catching up to do. Clearly, Bandit has over 500 employees. They employ what they call the humanomics philosophy, which I definitely want to hear more about. But Please welcome to the program, Michael Strickland. Thank you for being with us today. Matthew, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, great to be here. And Christine Dallas uh, and I used to work together many, many years ago when uh, I was a younger man. And uh, Kyle and Christopher, great to meet you, gentlemen. I don't think we've ever met face to face. But, uh, yes, but, but good, good to see you. And let me throw in one thing, uh, Matthew, since you, uh, the things that you just said, one of my long-held tenants, we are all on this uh, call in the entertainment industry. And uh, I have throughout my career not only been in the entertainment industry, but I also have obviously been in the political industry. And uh, I'm in the sports industry. Uh, I'm on the athletics board at the University of Tennessee and have spent most of my life in and around college football. And a friend of mine owns a pro football team. So I've, I've, I've got a lot of touches. But what I have long said is uh, entertainment. There are three forms of entertainment. There's the shows that we do on this call that we know about. But then there is sports, which to me is entertainment. And then there is the most supreme form of entertainment, which is politics. And back to what you said a minute ago, Kyle, uh, what Kanye did, what a politician does, what, what a rock star does, they're all selling themselves. So whether it's controversial uh, whether it's heartfelt, you know, whatever people in all three of these arenas do, they're selling themselves. And the funny thing is, and I think if you consider this, you'll you'll agree with me. Rock stars want to be sports stars, want to be politicians. Politicians want to be sports stars and rock stars. I mean, it, they all want to be one another because you, when you go backstage at a rock show, who do you see? Sports stars and and, and yeah, politicians. Yeah, exactly. When you go to a political event, who do you see? Rock stars and and sports stars. I mean, right. they love each other. It's all about being in the spotlight. So, to what you said, Kyle, it's it's all just a show. <laughs> Well, we, 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 we believe all that is true. We've also had a few sports executives on the program. Not only do they say the same thing, but 
they go far so far as to say that there are some obvious parallels between the work that we do and the work that's done behind the scenes, you know, in, in the sports industry as well. So uh, we appreciate you pointing that out. And certainly there are a lot of parallels and, and there's a lot to be learned from what is happening in sports. Certainly we've talked about what's happening in pro basketball and the fact that they've kind of led the way in terms of the advocacy efforts that players and ownership has taken uh, in the NBA. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to pre- – I as a New England Patriot fan, oh. I'm a Boston guy. Oh, as a Patriot oh, fan – I, I, I lit. No, no, no. We're not going there today. I'm not going to talk about your Raiders promise. I could all day long, all day long, but I'm not going to. Um, as a Patriots fan, I really do not want to like Roger Goodell. I feel that Goodell has gone out of his way to fuck with the Pats. They, the Pats get away with nothing. The things that every other team, the things that your Tennessee boy, Mr. Strickland, Peyton Manning got away with. I mean, Brady gets accused of 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 a ball being under oh. inflated. Manning received HGH at his house, and they just swept it under a rug and said, "Oh, no big deal." Goes on to win the Super Bowl. But like Tuck I said, rule. we're not going to talk about football today. Talk rule. anyway. Anyway, hater in the hater. grass. Drink your haterade. Drink your haterade. <laughs> Ruined us in '92. Um, <laughs> But Goodell has actually done a good job, too. So I really wanted to start, Michael, by talking about your company. But since we're talking about sports, I said in the beginning, my reason for liking Kanye was that he was doing something, that he was actually being vocal. We've heard from so few artists about anything that's going on in the political world this past year. I mean... Can you lend us your perspective on that? Absolutely, because I've been in touch with a ton of artists, uh, many that I know and many that I've come to know. And uh, you know, we're all entitled to our opinions. We're all entitled to our point of view. And I, from what I say from here doesn't mean oh, I agree or disagree, but 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 it's, it's what I've been told. And now this is my opinion. I, if I were an artist, I would never take sides on politics or religion because the minute you do that, you alienate, you know, technically 50% of your audience. So to take a position, you know, you can say that it's bold, you can you can have your opinion about it, but if you can sell to everybody in the world and you take any particular position, you're going to alienate some set of people. So I find that the the stars that don't take a position, some people I guess would say that they're not doing the right thing, that perhaps they should and help the world move in a particular direction. But I think they look at it economically, Matthew, and to your point, uh, a lot of them have told me that because to take a position for or against opening up, to take a position for or against how serious COVID really is or, or really isn't, to take a position at this point politically, all of the things that are wrapped in this moment uh, would be perceived as potentially doing damage to themselves. So a great number of them won't say anything. On the other hand, Uh, I was involved with the Red Alert Restart thing where we lit up 2,500 buildings. Well, we got a couple of hundred uh, little bitty movies that we did with people that range from Slash to uh, uh, Nathan Lane on Broadway to uh, Billy Bob Thornton to Alice Cooper to on and on and on. Well, you know, I don't think that that to me, that wasn't a political ask. To me, they did a 20 second video. Hey, I'm Slash. Uh, Please support Restart and and help save the live entertainment uh, industry. Thank you very much. 
Uh, I didn't see the political play in that. A handful of artists did, and I had to respect that because when we went to them for that ask to make that video, uh, for whatever reason, they, they saw a potential p politicization of it. So that's really, I think, the, the biggest thing. And, and there's a second thing uh, kind of related, and I don't know if you all have considered this, but, but especially for the more successful artists, for a, and, and, and I'm, let's take a Rolling Stones or a Madonna or a U2 or a, or a Kanye West, people that are clearly uh, financially uh, at an extraordinarily lofty position, for them to go public and say, we're desperate, we need money, uh, help our industry generally or our crew specifically. And, and this is what has been the industry's biggest bugaboo. There is a perception both in Congress and in the general public that you work for big, rich pop stars, and if they're not taking care of you, they should be. Well, a number of the artists said that to me, that, you know, I'll set myself up if I make that movie for criticism that, well, wait a minute. So what, Kanye's not paying his people? Well, shame on Kanye. So Kanye doesn't make the take. Now, he, he was not one that we reached out to, but that's just an example. And uh, so those are the two biggest reasons for non-engagement was they didn't want to look bad and receive that criticism. And they didn't want to uh, potentially enter into a, a negative political situation. And the inverse of that was, was the Chase Rice thing that you raised uh, when you've got people uh, uh, that go out and do a show and they get eviscerated. And I'm not saying that they should or that they shouldn't, but the chain smokers did that thing in the Hamptons. They got eviscerated. Uh, what you don't know sitting here probably is I, I'm aware of a number of bands in the last month that have done uh, a number of shows ranging from drive-in shows to uh, small theater shows uh, with a 3,000 cap theater with a thousand people in it, properly socially distant. They came off just fine. They weren't eviscerated. Uh, and, and, and I'm not quite sure why they got away with it. And I'm not going to name them because because I don't want to put them in the spotlight, but, but they're out there well, doing isn't it. The question not, isn't the question not why they didn't get eviscerated for it, but why they weren't actually credited for doing a successful socially distanced show with a limited capacity in a larger venue and made it work for themselves, for their crews and for their fans? Shouldn't they be credited for that? Uh, again, that answer changed Tuesday. <laughs> Up until Tuesday, both sides, and I'm not, I'm not being one way or the other. Both sides politicized everything. After Tuesday, the politicization of the virus, the politicization of doing shows, the, the politicization of everything has dissipated. I mean, I've spent the last 48 hours and it's, you're going to get this in an email. It's amazing. It's amazing. The fog is lifted. Now I knew it would lift. I thought it wouldn't lift till January or February, but it's lifted. Garth Brooks, who's a client of mine, and he won't mind me saying this, We've got four sold-out stadiums from last year that sold out last year. We've moved them to this year. Nobody asked for a ticket back. They're all in 100,000-seat stadiums. We're planning on doing them. Why didn't we do them last year? He didn't want to get eviscerated in the court of public opinion. Uh, but those things are, are the first one, I think, is the end of March. Now, will it play at the end of March? You know, who knows? There's a lot of details between now and then. But the point is that that. I think the public, uh, the public shaming of people for doing something 
uh, is going to completely. I, th- I think it's. I think it's gone. I really do. So we're faced with one one thing, and we can all agree on it, and that's the virus and where it really is. And do the vaccines work? I'm on the board at the UT Medical Center. I think you got that in the email, Matthew. Uh, we do have three slash four vaccines that will be with us this side of New Year. Three of them uh, uh, this month. Uh, the UT Medical Center is involved in one of the uh, clinical trials, and the efficacy of all three of these is greater than 90%. So I take three phone calls a day as a board member, and I live inside the medical moment. It's working. We've got Remdesivir, Regeneron, and a handful of other therapeutics. They work. And if you said that last Monday, you would be criticized as as oh you you know you're a you're a Trump person, but you can say it today and you're neither a Trump person nor a Biden person. You're talking hopefully about the medical situation. So I've stayed away from the medical conversation until really today. But we've got these vaccines, and if indeed they come out, and and indeed they are producing a hundred million doses, they've already produced a hundred million doses each. They will go to the most at risk, to the medical providers, to to the people you would imagine first. So I think we'll cover those people in December and January, and then I think it will leak out to the rest of us in February, March, April, which which sort of leads us, hopefully, to a more normal situation starting April, May, and and that's phenomenal. Now let me caveat that. What if, you know, what if everything I know and everything the medical community knows uh, flips on its head because the virus mutates? You know, what if, what if, what if? Don't take me as the know-all, end-all, but, but the, the bashing of vaccines and, and, and the amplification of the virus, and I'm not making light of it, I know people that have passed from it, all of that's, you know, is it a 10 and now it's not at a 10? So I think we can have good, honest dialogue going forward and, 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 and move us into a place where uh, stars are not uh, afraid or ashamed of, of bad social pushback for doing something, if that makes sense. Well, I, I hope you're right. That makes ton of sense. I appreciate everything you're saying, and uh, I can't wait for us to get out the other side and obviously get back to work and all of that. I, I will take a little bit of exception, just a personal opinion to a couple of the things that you said before. First of all, the notion that, you know, having a political opinion messes with your money, we get it. We've talked about the whole Michael Jordan Republicans wear shoes to comment from years ago. We've gone through that and and we know that that's a fact of life. But from a personal perspective, I mean, artists are supposed to be controversial. That's why they're artists. They're they're supposed to have an opinion. They're supposed to have a point of view. That's how they make a living, sharing their point of view. Folk music is protest music. Hip hop started out in large form because it was protest music. Where are the young people protesting, saying it's not about it's not all about money. We get it. It's about money. We understand the commercialization of the industry over the last 40 years has evolved to the point where artists have become brands. As I say, bands are brands. And yet the reality is there still people who make art and art has a perspective. And at a time of crisis, we would like to know what their perspective is. We as fans, not just as industry professionals saying, please, we would like some money. 
please, we are trying to make a living here. Please, you are able to relax and enjoy your lifestyle and vacation a little more this year, but the rest of us are pinching our pennies. No, no, that's not what I'm trying to say here. Certainly, there's an element of that for a lot of people. I appreciate what you're saying about artists not wanting to look like they screwed over their own people. I do think a lot of them could have done a little something or at least been more supportive. I'm glad to hear there were a number that were supportive of the restart. I am curious you named primarily artists that are 50 years old and older. I'm wondering how many younger artists actually offered to do something and say something and show support. But in the even in the absence of that answer, I stand by my conviction. I believe that artists have responsibility, and the part of the reason, not the whole reason, but part of the reason that art and artists no longer shift cultural opinion the way they did once upon a time is because they, because they put their money before their convictions, and I think that is weak. I think that is lame. I think that is. I think it's disappointing. Matthew, let me, you, you said when you began that, that you took issue with something I said. Remember how I started it. I'm not taking sides on it. I'm telling you what they told me. So I'm, <laughs> fair, okay, I, fair. That, that's what they told me. <laughs> I wasn't me. going after yeah, you, yeah, I yeah. promise. <laughs> that is what they told me. But to your point about, uh, about it being about money and, and how that rolled out, you're right. Very few of the younger artists engaged. It was primarily the older artists. <clears throat> and do they have- the younger artists are too high. They can <laughs> could be, but 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 to your point about controversy, one of my longtime clients and a good friend of mine, Alice Cooper, he made a he made a career out of out of controversy, didn't he? You know, he he never he never ripped the head off the chicken in Toronto. The chicken was thrown on stage and he threw it back. But the story came out that he ripped the head off and he called Shep Gordon, his manager that morning and said, oh, my God, they're saying I ripped the head off a chicken in Toronto. And Shep said, let's go with it. Let's let the, let it, you know, let the rumor live. And, and that was a defining moment in his career because people had to go see this guy that was going to rip. And same thing with Ozzy biting the head off a bat. It never happened. It never. But yes, to your point, people out of controversy. Uh, create careers but again that controversy always did what made them money and 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 back to what another thing you said i will not name names but most of the biggest artists in the world laid off all of their people in april huge bands huge the biggest of the big laid off their 20-year sound man their 20-year light person their 20-year whatever and those people are now sitting in a moment where they're going, you know, do I want to go back and work for that band? I've been unemployed now for eight months. And, and that band is worth literally billions of dollars. Now, the flip side of that is we've got some mid-level artists that have kept people on their payroll. It, it may be diminished, but they've done all that they can do. And they have they have earned the love, the respect and the friendship of their crew. So I think when we do come out of this, you're going to see a quantum shift because the guy or gal that, that engineered for ginormous pop band X may go work for ginormous band Z because they're so ticked off at, at what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And, and these are people, you know, you mentioned my email. I've got 1.2 million people in my email chain. Uh, this is what I do all day long, whether it's on a Zoom or whether it's on a phone call. And I've talked to a huge number of these people across all aspects of the industry. Uh, and, and no one sits outside of this devastation. No one. Uh, so the, the sound and, and light folks and 
and, and road managers and tour managers for the biggest acts are sitting at home unpaid. There it is. So let's, let's shift away from this a little bit because we didn't actually take a, a minute to go back. And we always like to give our younger listeners and our listeners who are perhaps on the fringe of the industry or not yet making a living in this industry, um, you know, we'd like to give them some perspective. And I said that you started Bandit when you were 12 years old. Tell, tell us about some of the early days. Tell us about your your motivation, your your passion, your interest for getting into the industry at such an early age. Well, thank you, Matthew. And Christine's heard this, whether she remembers it or not. She used to sit through the annual general meetings. When I was a little kid, I just loved music. And I was in the boys' choir, and I, you know, I did all the things that I could do musically. And uh, by the age of 10, I had been kicked out of, of two boys' choirs, and I went to the choir director of the last one and said, please let me be in here. I love this music stuff. And uh, I begged and I pleaded, and he goes, you don't understand, Mike. I, I'm kicking you out because you're so bad. You're so untalented that you bring the whole group down. Well, I left that meeting just devastated, knowing that I had no you know, no future in, in something that so moved me. I, I'm, I'm old enough that you know the Beatles in 62, 3, and 4 moved me. The Rolling Stones, all of that stuff. And, and, and I had no way to be in the music business because I was so horribly untalented. I couldn't sing, dance, had no talent. Well, I had been in community theater as a child, and I had seen lights on poles lighting the theater stages. And, and uh, the reason it started in 68 was they built the new Dobbins Bennett High School in Kingsport, Tennessee, where I'm from. And I went with my sister to see, I don't remember who, the, the, munch, the, the monkeys, the Beach Boys. I don't remember who it was. And when I left there, I went, holy shit, I got to do that. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I, I want to do that for a living. And uh, then I thought, well, you know, they have those lights in the theater. Now, you got to remember in 67, 68, outside of New York and L.A., where they were doing the psychedelic light shows, nobody had lights. The Beatles played in Shea Stadium in 64 with the stadium lights on. So the bands came into these uh, uh, National Guard armories and these high school gyms and played with the ceiling lights on. So... The next month, the guy that put on a show had a show. I drug all the lights from the theater of the high school down to the gym, clamped them on the handrails, uh, and charged him $25 to light Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. I don't wow. remember. I do not remember who it was. But the band came up. Now, you got to remember, in 68, they didn't have road managers and trucks and buses. Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons had the road manager who mixed the sound and got the paycheck. The band set all their own stuff up. The PA was a little set of custom tucked and rolled leather cabinets. And if you wanted to meet the band, be there at 3.30 because fans <laughs> didn't come until showtime. And oddly enough, nobody wanted to go backstage. What would you see back there? Uh, they want to be out front and see the show. So I was there at 3.30. I was setting up the, the, the bullshit lights I had borrowed from the school, hence the name Bandit Lights. We took the lights from the high school, put them in the gym and lit it. And when the band finished, they said, well, this was really cool. Tomorrow, could you go to Chattanooga, Tennessee? I'm making that up. Well, I was 12 years old. I had no way to get to Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I did. And the, school. The school. I, exactly. But I didn't want them to know that. So I did the, the thing that we all do in show business best. I lied. <laughs> I said, no, we're booked tomorrow. We're booked. Well, the next act that came through, uh, I had a guy with a car named Terry Wallace, and he had a Camaro, and we got a U-Haul trailer, and I anticipated this question, and guess what? We got it. So after that night, we put the lights in that U-Haul trailer and went to whatever that remote city was, but this was $35 because we needed $10 for gas. 
and that's how it was born. Fast forward to my senior year of high school, on any given week or weekend, we'd have two or three crews out within a 300-mile radius of Kingsport, Tennessee, and not only did we have the lights from the Dobbins-Bennett High School, we had the lights from both of the junior highs and from the theaters downtown. And back then, you got to remember 68, 69, 70, nobody locked anything. They didn't. didn't. Churches weren't locked. Schools weren't locked. So you just walked in and took the stuff, used it, and then brought it back. And again, hence the name Bandit. Now, we started building some wooden cases, and we started building some of this and some of that. But, But that was how it started. And then I came down to the University of Tennessee to get my business degree, and I shifted my inventory warehouse from the things I told you about in Kingsport to the Clarence Brown Theater at the University of Tennessee. It became, and I don't know if Christine knows that, that became my warehouse. So I had a handful of things and then I stole a bunch of stuff from the theater. But again, I always took it back. And by the time I got to be a senior at UT in uh, in business, we, we had enough junk that we owned that we didn't have to borrow it anymore. And the, the name Bandit was already there. But we built up this pretty big clientele because I was one of the, you know, while I was doing it, uh, uh, Josh's lights and and Joe's lights and blood lights and pig lights and heavy water lights and all these other people. Bob C. was beginning up in New York. Bob Stern was beginning out in the Northwest. Uh, There were other people much older than me beginning to do it. And and they were building companies with money. And I was just this idiot kid uh, that had more luck than anything else. And, and, And I'll wrap it up by saying, I speak a lot, and young folks, to your point, Matthew, how do I do this? I always tell people, remember one word, and the word is old, O-L-D, which is what I am now. Uh, Opportunity, (laughs) luck, and dedication. That's what makes anybody. Opportunities will come your way. They will come your way because of luck, and anybody on this call that, that says, no, 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 it wasn't luck, you're lying. It's always luck. And the dedication, if you don't stick to it, and I know that each of you on this call have stuck to whatever it was. If you're dedicated and stick to it, you're going to succeed. If you're not dedicated and if you don't stick to it, you're not going to succeed. Peyton Manning used to throw a thousand passes a day. Tiger Woods used to hit a thousand putts a day. I mean, you can go down the list of successful people and and dedication is the key to it all. And that that is my single biggest piece of advice to anybody that wants to achieve something in any business, but particularly uh, in the entertainment business, it's opportunity, luck, and dedication. I like that. Well, of course, our podcast is Hustle Like You Broke, so we certainly uh, embrace the hustler mentality. You don't sound like you were such a dumb kid to me, but uh, I appreciate the self-deprecation. Uh, you've grown the company to 500 employees on three different continents now, so obviously you're doing something right um, I do have to ask, well, so, so talk to me about this, this concept of humanomics. What, what, it, what does that mean to, to those who don't know? And, and tell us how you've used that to kind of develop the company mentality and philosophy over the years. Another great question. In the early seventies, I joined the, the stagehand union, IETSE here in Knoxville. So in my Sometimes I would work stage calls and, and, and I didn't work stage calls so much for money as to see how other people did things. So I would go over to the Coliseum in the early and mid 70s and set up for Rock Show X, help set up you know, whoever came in to see how my competitors did it. 
You know, what cable do they use? What are their methodologies? You know, how do they do it? That was somewhat of an education. The biggest education I got was that I didn't care if it was sound lights, buses, trucks. At that time, the thing I heard most from virtually every person on a crew was to hell with Bob, the owner of the company I worked for. Why? Because they were overworked. They were underpaid. Nobody had health insurance. Nobody had retirement. People were just so horribly, horribly mistreated. So I started keeping notes on people want to be treated better. And that was really it. People want to be treated better. Uh, so 35 years ago, we came up with this word humanomics, which is human married with economics. And to this day, what steers bandit lights isn't the bottom line. Bottom line is probably the third thing we look at. The first thing we look at is how does it affect people? And right now I'm, I'm pleased to say we've laid no one off. We've reduced no one's pay. We're eight months into it. Now we're very fortunate because you're looking at a really fiscally conservative guy and we had large cash reserves, but I'm betting on my people. You know, I, I didn't want to hoard the cash and see what the world looked like in February. Now I admit Bandit's the only company I know of that can say that, and I don't say it in a gloating fashion, but our focus has always been people. And and as much as I thought from, from the late 70s till about 99 that I was going to change the industry, I haven't. And there's two reasons that I haven't. Number one, most of the uh, owners and operators don't have that mindset. But more importantly, most of the guys and gals that work in the business don't seem to want that mindset. They value the, They value being a freelancer. They value you know, being able to do tour X today and tour Y tomorrow and tours and sort of bounce around. Now, this pandemic may change that. People may now go, you know, wait a minute, maybe it's not so bad to have health insurance and retirement. <laughs> but but the flip side of that is, even if you had it, even if everybody had paid their people like Bandit prior to this, they still would have been laid off because there's no money. So well, I, you actually already answered the the other question I was going to ask about your your staff, which was uh, what's what's become of the 500 employees. So kudos to you for keeping them engaged. Um, I appreciate you know your your philosophy on the the human humanomics. Uh, tough for me to say. You got to listen to um, yourself, Matt. That sounds good. Listen to it. Get it in your system. Humanomics. <laughs> Get it in you. Get it Embrace deep into it. Your soul. Humanomics. Embrace it. Uh, yes. Embrace yes, it. Hold I'll it with two hands. It. Uh, I'll think about it while listening to my slow jams later on, just like you, Brother Hamilton. <laughs> but but I had written down that, of course, humanomics is effectively the way the way you treat your staff directly relates to the quality of work that they ultimately produce. So kudos to you for really, you know, making that, uh, you know, a, a company mantra and for, for treating your staff so well. And, and uh, I, I guess... I guess the other question I want to ask about Bandit before we move on then would be, you've talked about the human side. Talk to us about the technology side. What you were doing initially, obviously, was, as you say, borrowing um, you know, equipment uh, that may be left over. But, but that's obviously no longer the way the, the lighting industry works. It has evolved to the point that technology, the lighting business, the concert industry in general, has become a, a bunch of different technology companies that come together to produce these very high-tech shows. How has Band... And you've, of course, 
you know, owned a few different companies, lighting companies, lighting products and what have you over the years. So how does the technology, you know, keep Bandit relevant? What are your thoughts on on the technology uh, in the lighting world? You're making the broad assumption. I know anything about that and I don't. But no, no, no. I'm just joking. I'm joking. Uh, going back in the company history and you brought it up, which is another good point. I, I owned Able Lights for a number of years. I started uh, Thomas Engineering in the U.S. and I started Tomcat Engineering in the, in the U.S. So I've, I've been on the manufacturer side. I've sold them all now and, and they're in different ownership. But but I came at it from, from that point of view as well as from, from running a higher company. And the, the technology, uh, going back to those days, one of the biggest spurts of growth we have was in 1981, I met... Uh, uh, Graham Thomas and John Walters, who owned Thomas Engineering in the UK. And I saw a pre-rigged truss, which is a piece of truss that held two six-lamp bars up in the truss, and they dropped out. Well, that was world-changing, and it was just launching in Europe. So I cut a deal to be their guy in the U.S., so I became Thomas Engineering U.S. And all of a sudden, I was the only guy in, in America that had this technology. And all of a sudden, we had more work than we knew what to do with because we had this Thomas Trust with these drop-down lamp bars, and, and we got more business than we knew what to do with. Fast forward a few years, I embraced high-end systems when they rolled out first the IntelliBeam and then the CyberLight and then some other products. And again, at that point, the only person that had uh, moving lights in bulk was a company called Verilight that eventually went broke. And uh, Verilight dominated. And uh, we ended up with a, a thousand moving lights from uh, from high end. And all of a sudden there was an alternative to very light. And, and that alternative was bandit. So we had sort of an eight year run where we were the very light alternative. And I think if you talk to the people at very light, we were responsible for breaking their back. And that wasn't the goal. That just was the byproduct because they went from a model of charging three hundred dollars a week for a VL one, which was the first moving light to I got a thousand lights and then this guy got 400 and that guy got 200 and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden their price point went 300, 250, 200, 150. And all of a sudden their model didn't work because the price competition put them out of business. And very light as a, as a rental company went out of business and the technology transitioned over to very light, the sales company. But I think if you talk to them, they will you know, they will tell you that we played a big part in breaking their back. And again, that, that was never the goal. We weren't out to get anybody. We just, to your point about technology, we flipped the concept. And then let's move forward, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, I saw the world going to LED and we manufactured our own range of LED lights, which we called green light. GRN was how we spelled it. But we, we had uh, 1,200 LED park hands uh, and the next closest company had about 150. And we had all these LED eight lights and LED moving lights. You know, we, we had several million dollars worth of LED lights before anybody else even manufactured them. So again, we had about a three year run where if you wanted uh, an all green rig, if you wanted an all LED rig, you had to come to Bandit. And that was spurred on by uh, Jackson Brown. Jackson had come to me. He was a customer. And he said, because Jackson has lived off the grid for 30 years. He's, you know, he's got his own solar and wind and batteries and all of that. So Jack, I said, Jackson, it'll cost you more. I mean, if, what normally would be $15,000 a week will probably be 20, 25,000. He goes, I'm good. I'm good. So he paid us more than he should have. 
And that year, we introduced the first all-LED rig to the world. Then Crosby, Stills, and Nash came on board. Then LCD Sound System. Then Garth Brooks. Then Bonnie Ray. And then, 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 then. It just kept on going. Well, again, the whole world has finally gone to LED. So technology has driven a lot of our success. And you move into today, and there's a lot of manufacturers offering a lot of stuff. And and the, the guys and gals that, that work for Bandit and all these other companies, back when I did it, it was literally done for sex and drugs and rock and roll. And when you got on the bus at, at, at any night, all due respect, Christine, there were no women on the bus. And you watched porn and smoked dope and misbehaved. You, you go out on a bus today, nobody's watching porn, nobody's smoking dope, there's no misbehaving, and most of them have college degrees because it's so complicated and so sophisticated. And it's, you know, it's a different set of folks because the technology has driven it there. And one of the great points about that is uh, these people are more in tune and more concerned about themselves and their lives, and they don't want to just get high and party and then die at 32. Remember the who, I hope I die before I get old, and the expression, don't trust anyone over 40. Well, you know, now being over 60, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I didn't die at 30. Uh, but but we got a different set of guys and gals now. And again, I, as I said, gals, bandit transition starting about 15 years ago to, to gals on the road. We have 36% female road staff now, which is incredible. And it's not because it's a focus. We hired the best people. That's mm-hmm. it. And Christine worked there. She knows. Uh, she was one of the Fishing. earliest female females at Bandit. And uh, we got 36% females. And you know what? They're phenomenal. They're absolutely phenomenal. But that's how technology has driven Bandit lies. Well, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be disagreeable, but I'm not sure that uh, there aren't crews that are still actively smoking a good deal of dope on the road these days. <laughs> last year. But, last year. <laughs> but we can leave that alone. I, I don't think that necessarily, you know, takes away anything from what you said. So we're just going to move on from that. <laughs> well, you hope it's not the driver. That's right. Um, but, but you actually introduced another great point, um, intentionally or otherwise, that, that aside from the technology, there has been a drive towards more sustainability and more, uh, you know, of an emphasis on trying to be more environmentally conscious um, what is it that Bandit is doing uh, in that respect? In 2010, when we rolled out Greenlight, I honestly thought by 2013, the entire Ill, uh, lighting industry would be LED because it saves energy. It's not hot on the stage. You know, all, all the economic benefits, less cable, smaller cable, less truck space, less trucks. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it translates. It didn't happen. Even now, it's not... Now we're about 80% LED. There's still a bunch of older technology out there. And that's because the guys and gals that are the creative people, they know the tools that they know. And and they're fearful to leave the old tools and go to completely new tools. I do think in, in another three years, everything will be LED. But along with the LED thing about sustainability is you have to go in and rethink your workplaces. You have to rethink your packaging. You have to rethink uh, your cleaning procedures, you have to rethink your health and welfare procedures as as how all of that uh, uh, works. Now, Christine, I don't know if you knew this or remember it, but back at the old warehouse on Dutchtown, we had about a one-month thing where we used to use that 
chemical to wash the trust to keep the trust clean. And it, and it became a theoretical issue was, okay, when we wash this trust with whatever this is, uh, what happens to the runoff and what is it? And we spent a month doing a deep dive because we called it, I don't know if you remember it, Christine, we called it acid yeah, washing the trust. Yeah. Well, well, once we dug into it, it wasn't acid. It was soap and water. But, but again, we, that was the beginning of wondering, what are we doing here? At the end of the day, it was, it was just soap and water. And we switched to a soap that, that the EPA said was okay to just go outside and do it on the gravel and let the soap go into the gravel. Uh, since that day, we and a lot of other people have moved forward here in the office. The lights are now all LED. Uh, the HVAC, we put in all new units that have a much higher sear rating. Uh, we've changed the windows out to make sure that the windows are tended and reflect sunlight. You know, those kind of things. Uh, and, and we and a lot of other companies are sort of moving to a more sustainable model. If it's a hundred mile journey, we and I think the industry are probably on mile 10. Uh, so there's still a long way to go in sustainability because you, you have to balance it with, with affordability. Of don't course. You? Yeah. you certainly do. And we appreciate that. And I appreciate the acknowledgement that we're really only just starting to make those steps and, and we've got a ways to go. But but certainly we appreciate your leadership and uh, and taking us a, in that direction. Sorry, so Matt. I, I, was, uh, I was just curious, uh, Michael, ahead, if Dallas, you're looking please. at the world now and particularly having had company your companies working overseas um, for the length of time that they have. And now that we have this sort of new global order, what are the biggest challenges you're facing in your um, businesses outside of the U.S.? It, it, at this moment, it's the same everywhere. Right. It's COVID, isn't it? And, and because, because, of the, because of the shutdown, the COVID has created uh, uh, absolute calamity financially. I mean, for, for everyone. And, and what most people don't understand, I advise over 100 groups now from Screen Actors Guild to National Association of Broadcasters to the Broadway League to the, to the uh, Directors Guild, the Producers Guild, the Pyro Association. I mean, I, I talk daily to, to all kinds of groups. Most of us in the production community think, well, it's just us. It isn't just us. It's the biggest of managers. It's the biggest of agents. It's the biggest of agencies. It's Carnival Cruise Lines, you know, and on and on and on. Everyone is crushed. Everyone. So the economic circumstance, Christine, is is a challenge. Even when the COVID passes, we're going to be faced with the economic ruin before us, which is why I've spent since March the 13th working on relief packages. Uh, and, and even if we do get this next relief package passed in November, it's going to be tiny. And, and we're going to need more relief after that. And I'm working on the next relief package because there's just no way back for some of the companies and some of the individuals within our industry. And if you talk to a normal person, they say to you, well, why don't you all just go like work at, at Home Depot or something? I looked at I looked at the dental assistant the other day when she was cleaning my teeth and she said, you know, we were off for four weeks. And she went on and on and on about how crushed she was for the four weeks that she didn't get paid. And I looked at her and said, We've been off at this point for seven months and we've got four or five to go. Can you imagine that? And, and she was stunned. And then I said, what if somebody said to you as a trained, highly paid dental assistant, go work at Walmart? How happy would you be? And uh, yeah. so that's the two biggest challenges is, is the virus itself, but then the, 
the the economic impact that's that's going to to crush us. And here's what's going to happen: take all of these big artists and big acts and big venues. Those people have all been thrown into a pool of unemployment, even if he or she has a job somewhere else. When this thing opens back up next year, is everybody going to run back to the corner they came from? Probably not. Because I know one of the world's biggest rock bands, I know for a fact that their sound person and their light person are not going back. And they've both been there over 20 years. So I think what we're going to see is supply and demand. Uh, the, the, the supply side is, is going to be there and the demand side is going to be there. But I don't think the partners are going to match up again. So I think you're going to see a lot of and you're also having a huge amount of attrition. A lot of people are leaving this industry to go do something a little more solid. So when Big Band X goes out and they've lost their sound guy or their light gal or whatever, they'll have to get somebody else. And how qualified will they be? And that is that's the next problem, Christine, is is ramping back up for, for, for getting people back to work and, and what he or she does. For sure. We've talked at length about, you know, it could be a two to three year or even a three to five year process of getting the industry back to full speed. There's certainly going to be at least a three to six month period uh, when we get back to work, when we start up again, where, you know, what, what, what I call muscle memory is going to be a factor, getting people back in the rhythm of working and, and related uh, problems that, that ensue from an extended time off. There are people who the last tour they did was late summer of 19 and they might not get back. Now, what you were saying earlier about the probability of a vaccine means maybe they are back within two years. But there are also those who are saying it could be late 21 or early 22 before we are really back. And some of those people then in high level positions will have been as much as just under three years without employment. Yeah, so, I, I don't believe that. You I, don't I'm, believe that? In opinion. That Mark Geiger, former head of uh, William Morris, said we won't come back until June, July of 2022. Completely disagree. Good, glad Completely to hear disagree. It. Uh, because I know where the vaccines, because I know where the therapeutics are, because I, I work daily at the UT Medical Center and, and have these conversations. Uh, and, and because the 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 fear that was created by this uh, this this political situation, which people say, well, what about the rest of the world? We set the tone for the rest of the world. When when the social unrest happened in America and people saw all of the the the, the protesting and rioting and all of the stuff, then the rest of the world broke out because they saw what's supposed to be the most stable, sound world in the country in this turmoil. And then they're in Latvia and Estonia and wherever and they went, well, if the Americans can do it, so can we. So the whole world broke out. And well, it, it's interesting you say that because I, I you know, I want to shift into politics now and talk a little bit about what you got there. But, but I also want to say, you know, whatever side you fall on, I, I mean, you're born and raised in Tennessee, you're, closest advocates are primarily Republican senators. Um, so, I, I mean, I suppose I can take a guess, but we're all, you know, in this together in terms of our efforts to get ourselves back to work. But one thing that I've found that's been very interesting lately to the point you just made about unrest in other countries, one of my bigger clients, I produce festivals for them internationally and, and primarily in Australasia. And He's born and raised Republican his whole life. And he said to me not long ago, he said, 
Now, where is it? Because I wrote this down. I didn't want to get it wrong. But basically, he said that it is effectively because of kind of the, 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 the way our current president behaves, the, the way he has kind of sold people on, you know, creating sides and, and putting people at odds with one another. Um, he basically, I mean, he's, well, I want to say he's a, he's a gun nut like our brother Hamilton as well. <laughs> Not a gun nut. He, no, he, told, he, the, he told me when this, he and I were in Jakarta at the beginning of March last year for about to load in a festival that we were going to be producing that week, that week when it got shut down. The first case in Jakarta happened literally the day we were supposed to load in big meeting happened. Everybody was sent home. The phone, the festival was initially postponed and then canceled. And we were talking not long ago about when, well, I'm, I was going to say, and, the, and what he said is, Basically, he said, fuck all of you. When I get home, I'm going to the supermarket and I'm picking up all the non-perishables and all the paper products I can find. Then I'm going to the, you know, the guns and ammo store and I'm buying all the ammo on the shelves. And when this world comes to an end and everybody's scrambling for food and nobody knows what the fuck to do and they can't eat and they can't survive and they come knocking on my door, I'm going to have a gun aimed at their head when I open it because there's no fucking way they're taking my food. That was what he said to me. But my point is, <laughs> this I know, uh, but the, the point is, he, again, as a lifelong Republican, was the first one to say to me, as we were talking about whether or not he was comfortable with announcing the probable dates for festivals next year, he said, it depends on what happens in this election. Because if the current administration is still in place, then we will probably delay for that much longer because the level of indecision, of uncertainty, of just discontent across the globe means now is not a good time to be announcing a festival for next year because nobody's going to want to run to the ticket place or online to buy their tickets. Everybody's going to want to wait and see, which I do question in some respect. I think that people, anytime somebody's put a show on sale, those tickets have gone pretty quickly. People who say that people are going to wait and see, I'm not sure I agree with that. But the point being you know, what's happening in this world politically and, you know, the, 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 the way that this president has behaved has kind of sown this discord across the globe that has everybody saying, well, is it safe to play the, to announce these festivals next year or not? All, all of Europe is, is planning to host their summer festivals starting in late May. And we know, those of us that know, know that the lineups have been booked. They are confirmed. They are ready to go. But they are waiting to see what happens before they put those tickets on sale right now because just the state of the world being what it is. So these next several days will be very interesting. All of which is, I guess, my way of, you know, saying more instead of less as we segue into your career in politics. Uh, let, so, let, Michael, let, I, let, let, I, let, go me, ahead. let me respond to what you just said. I feel like I'm on a late night talk show. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In terms of in terms of what I am, I'm a human being, and I don't say that to to, to be. Uh, I say that because it's true. The, the only thing that gets me down and it doesn't get me far down because I'm hard to get down, is when people can't treat people like people. 
You know, I, I don't see black, white, green, yellow, orange, male, female. I see people. And I long for the day when when we can get to a point where where we treat each other like people. And, and I've said this for 20 years. You know what's going to be the best thing in the world for this world? It's when the aliens attack. Because when the aliens attack, go look at all those alien movies. We come together as a world. We love each other. And you see those scenes in all those alien movies where there's a person hiding here and a person and they see each other and there's that connect. Another human and the human becomes the bond. But it, it took the aliens attacking to make that happen. And I don't know that anything short of an alien attack is going to do that. And I know that sounds weird, but but that's how I view it. And, uh, I totally appreciate that. And, and I'm Part neither, of me wants I'm to neither, say that Trump is an alien. Well, I'm neither I'm Republican sorry, nor, nor Democrat. And people have asked me, why do you talk to Lamar and Marsha? They're my senators. You know, if, if I had two Democratic senators, I'd talk to them. Uh, but I don't view the world that way. And, 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 and I just want to move us ahead and get us what about politically, Rubio? socially, and economically. He chairs the small business committee, and, and he and I have our, our philosophical differences. Rubio wants to do the bare minimum financially. He, 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 Rubio believes, and, and I, if he were here, I would say this. I've spoken to him. He thinks another round of PPP is all anybody needs. Ten weeks of, of partial payroll. Boy, howdy. So that means for our industry, you've been out of work for a year and you got 20 weeks of partial payroll. Nope. That doesn't get it. And and Rubio is one of the biggest uh, uh, people that fights restart. And he does it overtly. (laughs) He does it overtly. And I actually actually rewrote uh, his version of restart is called Senate Bill 4321. And that's what's been put forth twice by the Senate. Uh, I actually rewrote it to take it from 10 weeks to 30 weeks. And I actually physically, because I went to law school, I physically wrote the bill, the, the language in the middle, and sent it to them. Said, here it is. You don't have to pay a staffer to write it. Just take these out and put these in. And it's a whopping three sentences. And suddenly it gives us 30 weeks of, of not partial, but full payroll. Nothing. No response. So so let's let's shift the conversation then into politics at this point. And certainly you've become the most vocal uh, advocate for the industry uh, these last, uh, what, eight, 10 months. Um, and I was reading through some of, of your own writing and some of your own stats. And, and you've talked about the fact that, you know, we are an industry of over 10 million people. We are an industry which does, what was it, something like $877 billion in annual revenue. Now that, that's, our, um, that's all of arts and entertainment. That's not just concerts. That's anything you can imagine within the arts and understood. entertainment space. Understood. But yet, again, no relief has been provided to us yet. And and I think I saw some speculation somewhere that it comes lar- largely down to the fact that the concert industry, the arts in general, don't have a, a lobby, a serious lobbying presence. We don't have any PACs or super PACs that are supporting us. I mean, it's, I guess part of me, the the first thing I want to ask is, does it really, is it really just about, about money? Is it, is it really about the money that we give to senators that, that turns into them showing support to us? Sadly, yes. And let me quickly give you my journey, if I can do anything quickly. Please. Uh, as this began, yeah, I, knew I meant a, to ask that first. Sorry. I knew, a, <laughs> I knew a bunch of politicians. I'd lived and worked in that world. I had a bunch of friends. 
but I hadn't like worked in that world. You know what I mean? I, I didn't know the details like I do now. So as, as we went through and, and, and I joined forces, obviously, with Senator Young and Senator Bennett, who were the original authors of Restart. And we did all the things that we do. And then I got hooked up with Howard Schultz from uh, uh, Starbucks and we did the Howard Schultz letter. And this is all feeling good. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, after I'm told forever that that there'll be no carve-outs, in other words, no targeted money for any one particular market sector, all of a sudden, Heroes 2 gets dropped by the House. And Heroes 2 has in it the $120 billion Restaurant Act and the $10 billion Save Our Stages, two carve-outs, for two very different reasons. The restaurant industry is less than half the size of our industry. They have a quarter of the employees of our industry, but they have a phenomenal uh, lobbying effort and they've got phenomenal PACs. Eventually, a number of the uh, of the political, of the senators and house people told me off the record, you're in the back of the line because the restaurant people have phenomenal lobbies and give us lots of money. So that's why this industry, number one, that's half your size with a quarter of the employees, which isn't devastated. Yes, do they have single restaurants that are that are bad? Yes. But if you talk to anybody that owns a restaurant now, short of the ones in downtown Manhattan and those kind of things, but talk to somebody that owns a bunch of McDonald's. They're up 400%. Talk to, you know, 80% of their industry is up now. It's, it's doing just really good because we all started eating takeout food. And then when they reopened restaurants, we flooded. Yet they're still, they're still wanting to come to the trough. So they've got lobbies and packs. How did Save Our Stages make it? Uh, the people, the great people at Neva did a really good job of putting together uh, the, the, the Save Our Stages thing. They got Chuck Schumer on board. Chuck Schumer did a couple of things. Chuck went to Nancy. He convinced Nancy as a favor to stick it in because it's a tiny little number. And she did. It was pure politics. They didn't have a they just did a really good job. Most of the politicians said, oh, well, we're helping entertainment save our stages. Well, if you read Save Our Stages, it helps venues, managers and agents. That's it. That's the only, and that's 8% of our industry. Yet the, the presumption is, no, we've helped show business. Well, yeah, you've helped 8% of show business. So that was very confusing. But, but yes, back to where it started, that's why we have no voice. I've already begun work behind the scenes with NAM, National Association of Music Merchandisers, because they are well-respected on the Hill. They've been lobbying for, for 30 years. Two years ago, they got $1.4 billion for music education. They work the hill. Everybody on the hill knows what NAM is. They don't know what Bandit Lights is. They don't know what any of us are, but they know what NAM is. So it's my goal by sometime next year that we're able to wrap most of the live event industry into some kind of an organization like the Airlines Association. They're all together under one banner. So we can get all of live entertainment together under one banner, whatever we call it. Let that nest up underneath uh, NAM and let NAM lobby for us. And NAM has been lobbying for us now. They have, they have been our voice on the Hill outside of Mike Strickland making phone calls uh, and other individual efforts. So, so let's talk about more about about you know your phone calls and the other individual efforts because that's what I'm really curious about now. So, I was reading a letter that was signed by a number of small businesses and sent to Pelosi, Schumer, 
McConnell and McCarthy back at the beginning of August. And it was basically a plea for supporting small businesses. And there were, I don't know, maybe 100 signatures, more than 100 signatures from CEOs of of small businesses. And yet there were only three music business companies that signed you, Pyrotechnico, and another pyro company. Where are the rest of the ownership of small businesses, vendors in the concert industry? Where are the other people that are working with you to support you? Anybody that's doing something, I don't mean to undermine their efforts. I'd love to hear about them. But it does sound like you are the really the only voice and, and kudos and thank you for that. But why aren't you getting more support? And and how can we help to see that happen, to to get you the support and get the industry the support that it needs? There's two parts to that answer. The first part is that letter, I was invited by Howard Schultz to sign that letter. Uh, he, he had been made aware of who I was and what I was doing and thought I was a good fit for the letter. Uh, the Pyrotechnica people who are dear friends of mine, uh, uh, they, they too had, had been very vocal ab- about the pyro industry in particular. And Stephen from there, uh, Stephen and his brother Rocco have become good friends of mine now through all of this. So that's why we were invited. So I, at, at that point, that was very early and you can't fault nobody else for joining. We sent that letter out later and have gotten hundreds of thousands of people to sign. I've no idea who did. But to your point, in my conversations, uh, I talked to, to the biggest of the big and the smallest of the small and everybody in between via email and phone conversations. And let's let's go where we are today. Today, there are owners or or managers or leaders of some extraordinarily large firms that just don't have the heart to do anything because those folks are days or weeks away from bankruptcy or being out of business. Are being out of the industry. So, so how do you, how do you have the heart to do what I'm doing when you're going to lose your house? And I don't mean this. I'm blessed. God has blessed me. I'm very fortunate uh, that that I was in personally in the financial position that I was in, and corporately in the position that we were in. And I don't ever like to talk about this because it sounds like like being being arrogant or something. I'm not. We had saved up a bunch of money to buy a new building in in Charlotte. One of our philosophies is we own all of our real estate. Uh, We had a bunch of cash to buy this new building in Charlotte two weeks after the COVID hit. So I had that money. We had money saved up for CapEx for buying new lights. I had that money. We had money saved up for pay raises in July. I had that, you know, we just perfect storm, you know. If it had come a month later, it probably would have been different. I would have bought the building. I would have bought the new lights and it would have been different. So we had this cash accumulated and and by the grace of God, we're very fortunate. But to get back to your question, I talked to these people and and some of the people I talked to were huge, huge names that you know in the business. Managers. There are huge managers. CAA, William Morris. William Morris owes $9 billion. And and they and CAA have the most expensive real estate around the world. London, Rome, Paris, New York, Beverly Hills. They've got rent. They've got utilities. Uh, Live Nation. Uh, I mean, these these folks' overhead is phenomenal. There was no business plan, whether you learned it at UT or at Wharton Business College. There was no business plan to run a monolithic industry on zero income. There was none. So... 
I get it, uh, Matthew, from talking to these people. They just don't have the heart for it. And, and that that's what made it more imperative to me that, you know what, I'm the guy with the tools. I've got a law degree. I've got a business degree. I'm in the medical arena. I'm in the sports arena and I'm in the entertainment arena. I've got the tools. You know, I, I was built to do this. And again, I know that that sounds arrogant. I apologize. I don't mean for it to. But 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 I was built to do this. And uh, I don't know anybody else that has the heart for it because they're all in such a financial moment that they're crushed. I mean, I appreciate you saying that. And again, I appreciate the self-deprecation. I don't think you're being arrogant at all. I think you've taken on a Herculean effort and put the industry on your back and you're, you're allowing others to make excuses, which may be reasonable or not. But the fact remains, you know, the fact remains, it sounds to me, it feels to me like you should be better supported. There should be more people behind you, with you, uh, making those phone calls, establishing, again, not to take away from you, but to say you are one person. And in the absence of cloning you, where can we, how can we help you find other people? Do you not believe we need more of a committee that is uh, behind you? Do you have a, a strong team or a committee of, of people supporting you that are also making these calls, that are also, you know, making these, you know, these you know, putting in the work really to 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 move the industry forward. Certainly, certainly, we know you're part of the you know the the we make events, and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that. Um, and perhaps that's part of the answer to my question. But you know, where are all of the people, and and do you need more? And again, how can we help in terms of of getting the the word out and and supporting you in 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 an effort to support us. It's not me, and I put that in some of and most of my emails. It's tens of thousands of people. Like I say, I've got the 1.2 million person email. We make events is an organization that I work with, and they've got a phenomenal group of people. We have a, a call three times a week. We just had one before this, and and there are there's the sort of the leadership team, and then there's sort of field leaders across the U.S., and then it feeds down to the rank and file. And that was why the magic of a red alert restart happened September one. We had thousands of people all over America that engaged and did things. You know, we had a street fair in San Francisco. We had uh, Pearl Jam came on board in, in Seattle and, and got the Space Needle and all the iconic Seattle things done. The great people in New York, the local one had a, a road case stand up thing down in Times Square. We got the all the billboards in Times Square to go red alert. That wasn't me. That was those people. You know, it it was think global, act local kind of thing. All I'm doing is steering the ship and providing information. People have asked me, well, why, why didn't you do a website or why didn't you do an organization? That's not my job. My job through my email chain is just to feed this information out, answer questions and let people act locally. You're going to see today we've got another We Make Events uh, initiative for the 10th. We've got a, one of those big giant trucks that has the signs on it that are LED boards. It's going to pull up right in front of Congress and pop up. We've already got the parking permission and the planning permission, and we've got what's going to go on the sign. And November 10th, for, for 14 hours, this truck's going to sit there and scroll our message so that everybody that goes in and out of the Capitol sees our message. There's also an activation around that. We're going to have it on over a thousand screens nationwide. We've got an email campaign, blah, 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 blah. I didn't do that. I just provided the access to the means to get that done. Then you go to uh, NEDO and NEVA and Live Events Coalition and Extend PUA Now and 
uh, uh, we, we save, uh, excuse me, save live events now, which is an AEG Live Nation play. I mean, there's, there's just a phenomenal amount of, of great people. And I kind of sit in the middle and kind of steer information out and talk to these people on a daily basis and keep them informed. Is there anyone that can act in, or interact directly to Congress like I can? Not that I've been able to find. But so I'm the guy that, that talks to people, and, and I try not to use names because I, I feel like the first time I call a name and say, well, Senator so-and-so told me this, that'll be right. the last time that senator talks to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I try not to divulge directly too often where the conversations are. But, but in, in terms of getting things done, I've, I've done three national television shows. The first one was CNBC. I had help getting to those places by this network of people. So yes, there's a phenomenal amount of people that are making this happen. Say, so I'm just sort of, I'm just playing center field and throwing the ball around. And what the way it happens is somebody in the email chain comes to me and says, Hey, uh, I know this person that can do that. What do you think? And, and then I just give them the bullets and they go off and fire the gun. So just continuing to build that network. Now, right now, I've got a three-pronged play for November, which will be launched either today. I've got it all written up. I'll either send it out today or tomorrow. But but again, once I send it out to this 1.2 million people, people start feeding back, and then all of a sudden, magically, this stuff happens. One of the things I've, I'm working on is appearing before the Senate Small Businesses Committee, committee with a major, major star uh, uh, in 10 days. We, we've, we've got it lined up that I'm going to sit in front of, to your, your case, uh, Christine, I'm going to sit in front of Rubio and the small business community, me and this pop star, and, and present our case. Uh, it took a long time to get this worked out. Why is it happening? Because I've got this pop star that's agreed to do it. You think they wanted to see me in front of the small business committee? I don't think so. But they wanted to see my pop star. <laughs> so those are the kind of things that we're doing. But again, it, it isn't me. It's, it's the strength of all of these people. Well, I definitely appreciate that. Go ahead, Banks. I had a question. Going back to what you were saying about there were so many people that, you know, are definitely holding on by a thread. Isn't that more incentive for them to give every single resource that they have at this point to try to save and get the voice out and to, you know, help in any way they can? It just seems like if I'm struggling, I'm doing all that I can to try to stop from drowning. And if this is an opportunity to get in and do anything or contact or reach out that I would make that push. I, I don't, I don't see why people wouldn't want to get involved and help if they're struggling. Again, there's, there's two answers to that question as well. Uh, a lot of these fo folks I talk to th their depression is a real thing. I mean, and, and, and it went from, People that you all know that in March and April and May were chin up, I'm good, it's okay, to November, completely depressed for economic reasons, for, for they don't see an end in sight, all of those things. So they're depressed. And that's why I sent out the email last week that said you have two choices, do something or do nothing. And if you do nothing, you get nothing. Well, I hit some nerves there because a lot of people that I had lost came back and said, thank you very much. You know, I never looked at it that way. If I just sit here in my, in my living room and drink beer, I'm going to die in my living room drinking beer. So I, I re-engaged a number of those people. And I'm a firm believer in the old expression from, from uh, Norman Vincent Peale, power of positive thinking. If you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. 
Uh, and I think I was preaching that, Christine, when you were around. I, I don't remember, but but it's a, you know when I get up in the morning, I think, okay, today's going to be a great day, and here's what I'm going to do. Every time you have a choice, it could be a bad choice, it could be one bad thing or another bad thing, but one bad thing is slightly better than the other bad thing. Uh, so it all starts with a positive attitude, and I think that's what you're saying in that question. But but you'd be amazed at, at the power of depression. And I don't want to make light of those folks because they're, they've become good friends of mine. I had an 81-year-old gentleman call me from California that's that's in a periphery business to ours. And he has seen everything he lost collapse and his wife and daughter work with him. And he was despondent. And uh, so then we began to engage and I made him aware of some alternatives and some things he could do to get down the road. And, and he told me that he had a building worth $2 million and he couldn't get a, a $500,000 loan against the building just you know, to keep him and his wife and daughter paid uh, because they saw no way for him to make his note payments. And that's a very real trap that that gentleman's in. And, and it didn't change. Uh, but, but I talked to him at least weekly. And, uh, you know, I, I wish there was an answer. But, but when, you're, when you have no money and you're broke and you've lost your home, you're just going to sit and watch somebody else do it and pray. And that's why I try to keep people that can uh, to engage, write these letters, make these phone calls, do the simple things. Believe it or not, I've had a lot of people lost their Internet that I talked to because they couldn't afford to pay for their Internet. Uh, every morning when I send out one of those group email things, I get somewhere between three and ten. Bob's no longer at this address. Tells me that Bob got laid off. I mean, it's very real. Well, again, we, we appreciate the task that you've taken and putting the industry on your shoulders. Um, I appreciate you calling attention to all the people that are, are supporting your efforts and uh, getting active, getting involved. And I, I didn't mean to disrespect you or them when, when suggesting that I, I thought you needed more support. I, I'm still struggling. <laughs> Well, I'm still struggling with the fact, and I mean this respectfully, I think you're going to take it the right way, that in the absence of a PAC, there aren't more active voices in the live entertainment industry on Capitol Hill. It's not that you're not doing an amazing job. It's that we need three to five of you or more. What? Where are those people? How can we find them? That may be a rhetorical question. Um, I, but again, I, I just, I feel like we need more voices on the Hill in addition to those voices supporting the efforts. Um, but I suppose perhaps the, the larger question to your point um, is that those people perhaps don't have a political aspiration, which begs the question, do you have political aspirations? Absolutely not. Politics is politics is to me the, the most supreme form of show business, certainly, but it's not a pond I want to swim in. It's, you know, it's how do you tell when a politician's lying? Their lips are moving. Uh, and I would say that in front of politicians. Uh, I, I was on the phone last Saturday with the senator and uh, senator was rah, 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 support you, love you, brother, hang up, you know, hung up, turn on the TV. There's that senator going. I don't think we need any more relief money. I mean, you know, <laughs> they, so, they talk, you know, they're, they're best friends, whoever's in front of them. So when it all comes back, how do you feel salaries are going to be 
Are they going to be cut salaries coming back to the same <laughs> the same wages as we were making prior to the pandemic? Or you know, how how what are your thoughts on that? I've got more than thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got facts. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when the economy crashed. Uh, we all thought that was bad, but as we know, the industry didn't shut. We just had our prices pushed down. Every client I had except one called me up and gave me the opportunity to work for them uh, in the future uh, at 35% less as an average. And you take the biggest of pop stars. Why did they do it? Well, let's take ginormous pop star X. Uh, they couldn't sell any more tickets because they're selling out. Uh, they couldn't raise their ticket price because the economy had just crashed. So they got together and said, how can we find money? Oh, we can grind all the crew and the vendors. So they all went and we probably all lived it. Everybody's wages got cut. The vendor's pay got cut. And when a vendor's pay gets cut, the vendor's employees get pay gets cut. So we survived a 35% downturn uh, at that moment. Now let's move forward, Kyle, to your question about now. We at this company, and I talked to other company owners, are already hearing from artists from promoters, from agents. When we come back, it's going to be lean and mean. And you got to understand that my company, my artist, my whatever, we're just, you know, we're just hammered. So you're going to have to work with us. And, you know, your first response wants to be, yeah, well, we got hammered too. Um, so to answer your question, purely an opinion, but I believe it to be a good one. Uh I think you're right. I, I, I know. I mean, I, I've already got some contracts for next year, and, and it was a band. I'm making this up, but it was a band that say was going to go out with a, a $30,000 a week light show, and they're only going to spend eighteen this year, and they want very nearly all the same stuff for that price. And, and I believe you're going to see more of that, not less. Certainly between May of 2020 and December of, excuse me, May of 2021 and December of 2021. Even, even when there's going to be a, uh, everybody's going to want to go out at the same time. So it won't be, you don't think there'll be price wars since everybody's going to hit at the same time. Everybody's going to want to be somebody to be available. So since uh, an actuality, there would be more work than there is gear. Correct. And that will play into the wheelhouse of bus companies and truck companies because a bus company mm -hmm. And the truck company, they're contracted on the front end, aren't they? They usually know before anybody when the tour goes out. And and acts and people know that there's very few trucks and very few buses. So I think the trust and buck, bus and truck people, uh, bus people right now are devastated. Truck people just moved over to hauling freight. Mm -hmm. But I, I think when we get out of this, they're, they're going to be able to charge a premium. But historically, sound lights, video, pyro, wardrobe, guitar techs, et cetera, I, th I think those segments are still going to get ground. Yes, there'll be a supply and demand issue. I just think that, that the grind will still happen. And the guarantees won't go down. Not what Kyle wanted the guarantees to hear. will stay the same. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, at the front of house, hopefully I don't get touched too hard. And my fellow modern engineer, Chris, hopefully we don't get touched too hard. Matt, that's talking to you. Don't 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 pocket rape us. <laughs> and again, it, it depends on your relationship with your artist, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got a great relationship with your artist, I think you're okay. I'm talking more about the sort of the rank and file guy, uh, yeah, guys yeah. and gals. But they, but as you said earlier, you know, guys who've been working with these artists for twenty plus years have now been released. 
So, I mean, the loyalty is, is, is not there at the end of the day. So, you know, they're starting at one with a new client. Whereas, you know, then a person like I get called in for the person who just left and I'm not going to charge pennies on a dollar, you know, so they're still going to end up probably paying the same money, maybe a little less here or there. So they might as well just stay with their family member who's been with them for the past 20 years. Unless they just want, unless they want to use that as an excuse to, you know, to, to, for, for a, a fresh start or a clean to house or yeah. a clean house per se. Well, I can use real numbers, uh, Kyle. Uh, we're often, before COVID, asked for, uh, we, we want a really good lighting director, really good. And uh, the lowest paid person that, that we bill for is about $300 a day. So then they'll say, well, we don't have any money. So we'll propose a $300 a day person, $2,100 a week for a lighting director. And this is pre-COVID. And they go, oh, my goodness, I can't pay that. But at the end of the day, they want the best lighting director in the world for $1,400 a week. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's a lot of that out there yep. pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I already know from some of the talks that we're having going forward that, that the artists and, and, and the booking agents and the managers are all of a mindset that we're not going to be able to, to charge what we once did. And, and we've got to make up all of these horrific losses. And, and where can they squeeze? Well, they squeeze for everyone that works underneath them. And, and uh, it's just, I think it's a reality. I think it'll be spotty. Some people will, will do good and some people won't. Well, Michael, we always uh, go into a series of quick hits before we let our guests go. Before I get to that, Dallas, Banks. Brother Hamilton, anything from you? I had a quick question, Michael. You talked about um, that you don't see it going into 2022, and you said that you have an idea that it will be next year. Is that because of the acceleration with the vaccine? And if so, do you think that a lot of these artists are going to be willing to take a vaccine that early to get back on the road, knowing how some people are as far as being germaphobes and being anti-vaccinators, all that situation, are they really going, going to be willing to take a vaccine to get back on the road and do shows? Yeah, and those are two related but also unrelated issues. Uh, again, because of my role on the board at the UT Medical Center, I'm privy to all this information. And uh, let's assume for a moment that there is a vaccine, and let's assume that most people are comfortable with it. And let's assume that it's it's good enough to go. There, are, there is a set of people that just simply, personally, will choose to not engage. You know, how, how big is that set of people? Be it fan or person within the business. You know, Elton John's announced 2022. You know, probably largely because of his age. Uh, I think the Eagles have put everything off till 2022. Uh, Leonard Skinner, uh, uh, Gary Rossington has had several heart attacks. And uh, Ricky Medlock uh, has one lung. So, and I've talked to them, you know, their, their, their willingness to go out into a potential COVID environment is probably greatly reduced because of their medical situations. So there's a lot of that. But then you, you look at these younger artists, I say younger, I mean 50 or, or under, they're probably of a different mindset. 
but let's assume that, that these vaccines do work and let's assume that we're at a good place. Uh, I think the landscape will be full of people out there working and wanting to work. And those people that don't want to uh, certainly have the option not to. And, and I pray that I'm correct in my assessment of it. But again, it's not based on me just going, well, you know, I think it's based on heavy involvement. And uh, a couple of things that we haven't touched on. And again, before Monday, I would be saying, people would say, well, you're just a Trump supporter for saying that. Uh, the, 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 go to the CDC website. The number of people that have died from COVID, this is CDC information, not me, from COVID is 6% of the death count. The other 94% died with COVID. And don't take my word for it. Go to CDC. That includes people that had heart attacks, people that had strokes, people that were in car wrecks, people that came in at the age of 72 with four or five comorbidities, and they were headed for death's door. And, and uh, 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 I think it's 9% of the number were people in, in, in hospice. They were in hospice because they were extraordinarily ill and they were going to die. And they tested them and said, hi, oh, they've got COVID. And then so there's a big difference in dying with COVID and dying from COVID. Uh, and the other piece of that is, and this is not a myth, again, I'm on the finance committee, a month into COVID, the federal government did the right thing. And when you do something, you get paid by Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Medicare, Medicaid, whoever, and you have to argue for your what's called the reimbursement rate. And we typically get about 80% of what we bill. So if we have a $10,000 bill, they'll pay us $8,000. And that's what we get. In order to help save the hospitals, they gave us 120% of what, what we bill if it's COVID related. So in a moment, we started testing everyone that came in for COVID. You could come in with a heart attack and we'd check you for COVID and we would get paid 120%. Well, if we were going to get paid 80%, that's not a 20% bonus. That's a 50% bonus because the difference in 80% of billing and 120% of billing is a 50% bump. My hospital has swung from a $16 million projected loss to a probably $60 million projected profit because of all of this extra money from billing. So there's all this billing going on, and, and there's, there's the reality of, of the number of people that die purely from COVID. And so knowing those things, I do believe that by February or March, the, the what I call politicization of the virus, it, it's already dissipated. Ask yourself, have you heard any counts or numbers or conversations since Monday about COVID and how many people are dying? It's, it's kind of dissipated. Right now, today, go to the CDC. There's 60 million people in the United States with flu. We're, we're going to experience uh, 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 80,000 deaths this year because of flu, regular flu. And there's only 2.5 million people with COVID. Again, not making light of it, not at all. But we live with flu. We live with a lot of things. The biggest killer of people in the United States is, is heart disease. 648,000 people a year die of heart disease and largely for, for obesity and diabetes and those kind of related things. But we just live with it. And, and I do believe we'll get to a moment there's a, where we'll, we'll learn to live with COVID and people go, well, that's horrible to say. Man has eradicated one virus in history and that's smallpox. That's it. No other virus has been eradicated. So to have the expectation that we're going to eradicate COVID is very unreal. Uh, and again, believe me, I had a, I had a relative die 
I've had good friends that, that lost. I had one friend at UT that lost three family members. So I'm not making light of it by any means. So is the new model then then to going forward, if the vaccine is not something that's uh, widely accepted, do we see a, a mass COVID testing, you know, facility set up, you know, before a show where everybody gets tested? In order do, you have to a mass, keep... do you have a mass flu testing? <laughs> no. <laughs> What's the odds of catching the flu at a, at a concert? High. high yeah. I, I don't know the answer to the question. Yes, I, I think. I think short term you will. I think January through June, we're going to continue that quick testing. But I think we will get to a point, I don't know where it is, where that just dissipates. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, the, 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 okay. the, survival, the survival rate, again, go to CDC, if you're under 70, is 99.98%. Okay. Well... Michael, you've been a fantastic guest. I have to be honest, part of me wants to push back a little bit on on your your what you're saying about COVID. I do believe that it's not entirely like the flu, that it's been proven to spread slightly differently than the flu, and that, you know, when you get COVID, yeah, the infection rate's much have, higher. Exactly. And and if you are living with some sort of comorbidity and you get COVID and die, COVID is what killed you. It might have, you may have been on your way. You may have had symptoms. You may have had a prognosis that was taking you in a bad, down a bad path, so to speak. But uh, when COVID accelerates that process, COVID is attributable to that casualty. And, and I, so I don't mean to, or wish to undermine people that have passed with COVID um, quite so casually. Um, but be that as it may, and moving on, Dallas, you worked for Michael, what, 20 plus years ago. Is there anything you've always wanted to ask or say I, to him before I mean, we wrap you know, today? It's For me, it was a beginning, you know, it was a great start. I wish I could have stuck with the, um, the scheme of it because it was different times, but, you know, females weren't quite as acceptable back then. Um, but it was awesome. I mean, the things I learned, I've always held with me. And so I, I appreciate it. And I love seeing Mrs. Strickland killing it right now because it's nice to know, you know, I've been in the same house and I think that matters in our business. You know, so. Matt, real quick, just to hit you, cause again, I've lost people, but if you got terminal cancer, and you get COVID, COVID didn't kill you. You were gonna die from cancer. If you have it metastasized through everything, you cannot tell me COVID took you out. So again, when we and we talked about this early on, you could get a gunshot wound to the chest, but you had COVID, COVID didn't kill you. The gunshot wound killed you, but you would get labeled as a COVID death. So, you know, I, I can't, I can't. That's why I'll, even though I, I've lost my, I've lost family members, but again, that's where I disagree with you on that. That That's not true. COVID does not kill. What he said, mathematically, those numbers, that makes sense. But what you're talking about, that's not the end all be all. And that's why the world is shook. Yeah, we're afraid of it. We're, we're deadly afraid of it. But, but, and, and Matthew, you may not like hearing this, but, it, but it, and I don't have a side on this. Okay. I, I'm just throwing out figures. Uh, 
we go out and get in the car every day and go look at the statistics of dying in a car wreck. Uh, there's an assumption of risk in life, and I know people, a lot of folks don't like to hear that. Uh, you've got to get in the car to drive around. And personally, this is me. You give me a choice of spending the next three years in my house till COVID burns out, goes out, goes away, or taking that risk and, and living my life. I am going to take that risk and live my life. I don't speak for anyone else. I, I appreciate that. I, I don't mean for this, you know, conversation to, to, you know, go in the wrong direction. My, my opinion is, is my opinion is twofold on, on all of that. And the, the first one is I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my parents who are aging. And so I think that being cautious in that respect is, is something that just we, we have to do. It's not that I, you know, live with any comorbidities. It is that I come in contact with people I care about who do. So I wouldn't want to find out that I am asymptomatic and they got it because of me. The other thing I want to say, and I've said this since the very beginning of COVID, is the single biggest factor involved in whether or not a person is safe and whether or not a person transmits the disease and how people will feel about going to concerts with it, how I would feel standing in the audience surrounded by other people, it comes down to trust, trusting people that have the disease, but say, nah, fuck it, I'm going to go to the show anyway. They say, I mean, we heard and that's very selfish. Early, that's selfish. It is. It, but it is we also heard very early. Has the flu and they come around you and get you fucked up too. So correct. I agree with that. So all of that is wrong. Correct. Stay your ass at home and wash your <laughs> right. hands, do everything but, else. But you can't. Which is exactly my point. You have to trust that people are going to do the right thing. And what I think we have learned over the course of human history is you can't fucking trust everybody. You just can't. And that is why concerts have the capacity to become super spreader events and why there is still inherent risk involved. Again, we're saying mostly the same thing here, but you know, I do think that we have a corner to be turned still and hopefully the presence of some form of vaccine or the ability to, you know, get a vaccinated or treated effectively, you know, in relative short order, helps us get to work, helps us overcome the risk, helps us deal with the fact that we can't trust that the person next to us might not be lying about it or be unaware. And we might, you know, get it just because we're in line together at the beer counter or, you know, in the bathroom at the same time or what have you. So, Again, I hope that all of the things that you're saying, Michael, come true, that by before the end of this year or else early next, we are on a path of getting all of us back to work. I hope in the meantime, all of your efforts on the Hill start paying off and allowing people to sustain for another what could be six months, even, you know, if we are getting back to work next summer, most of us are still out of work for the next four to six months. Um, certainly we appreciate your efforts, um, in, in, you know, creating awareness and in being a leader and an advocate. I do think that we need more advocates for the industry. I say again, I think we need more artists who advocate 
for the industry, but 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 we here came together in part because we want to be a voice of change and we want to be a voice of progress in the industry. So thank you for your efforts in leading the way. We appreciate you very much. Uh, and now before we let you go, we do have a quick list of, as I say, quick hits. These are typically applicable to people who tour actively. First question is what would be the first tour that you ever did, whether you're the provider or else uh, actively were on the road? Oh, Lord goodness. Uh, probably the grassroots. Okay. Everybody's going, who was the grassroots? Was that at age 13? <laughs> no, that was at uh, 15. There it is. <laughs> 15. And do you have a favorite tour or moment that you can relate to us? Hmm. Good question. Uh, favorite tour, and, and again, it's it, it's this is the answer to a lot of my questions, but it's only because he is such a phenomenal human, and that's Garth Brooks. I mean, I, I've never met a nicer, more caring guy. His people are still on payroll. They, they, of course, he's he can afford it, but just what a great human being all the way around, be it a tour or one-off or there's not a finer human being out there. Very good. So my favorite, and I think the most important question that I ask every guest, if there is any one thing about the industry that you would like to see us doing better moving forward, what is it? Humanomics. <laughs> Putting people first. You know, you mentioned the fact I got that, that uh, I was very humbled when I got that Parnelli Lifetime Achievement Award in January. That's how I closed my speech, was to urge everyone in the industry, let's focus on people. And, and again, we've done it our, our 40 years, but very few people do it. And it's, you know, people got to come first. And, uh, you know, you look at some of the big tech companies, they put people first. That's why they succeed. You know, that's why Amazon and Google and forget the political situation in those companies. They put people first. And uh, our industry doesn't. And that's tough to say, but our industry doesn't. Well, thank you for that. Before we go then, any shout outs or parting shots that you'd like to extend? People. Because <laughs> on the other side, on the other side, whether it's venues or companies or buses or trucks or all of the things, I think we all know those things are going to be there. The owners may be different. You know, that company X may be owned by somebody new. Uh, companies may all go bankrupt and somebody else sets up a new company, but those companies don't exist on the other side without people. And again, I'm not being, I'm not trying to, to be cutesy. That's the truth. People come first. Appreciate that. Dallas, anything from you? Well, I can't say go vote because we've done that. <laughs> I just going to say be patient and hold on because we've still got a long ride ahead of us. For many reasons so that's all thanks uh i'll just say be smart <laughs> you know be smart think about the Everyone's future being philosophical today there it is <laughs> brother hamilton <laughs> as always tactical training is important 
<laughs> oh my god! Shoot straight, <laughs> hollow points. Don't He's miss. going all out. Hollow points. Wow. <laughs> all out. There it is. Gosh. Hollow points. You need hollow points for shooting deer, I home assume. Defense. Right. It's, it's home defense. <laughs> home defense. Grandmama, don't go knocking on his door too wow. late at night. He got a hollow point waiting for you. What that ass. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael Strickland, you've been fantastic. I appreciate you. My shout out goes to all those who are doing their part to make an effort to do something, as Michael said, to do something, to be active, to be engaged in the conversation, to be a part of the change, to be a part of making this industry better. COVID or otherwise, I stand by my belief that now is a time to take advantage of the reset we've been offered, the opportunity to rethink the way we live our lives, we conduct our business, the way we treat fellow humans, and the way we move forward and we progress as individuals, as a business, as a country, as a world. And whether we know the outcome of this election by the time we air tomorrow or whether it is another few weeks, whether we have to wait for the Electoral College to actually cast their official votes in the beginning of January, whatever it is, the 8th, I believe. Whatever happens in these next couple months, we hope everyone is safe. We hope everyone acts smart, takes care of each other, looks to the future, and uh, continues to improve themselves and their surroundings. So to all, as always, we appreciate you. Could I add one? Listeners, could I add one thing? Yes, please. Yes, please. I've said this before. I had the pleasure and the honor of, of twice meeting a gentleman named Sammy Lee Davis, a Medal of Honor winner. And I can't tell you how humbled I was to, to know this guy. He's still alive. Uh, he wrote a book, and, and it's, it gives me goosebumps whenever I say it. But uh, you don't lose till you quit. And, and you know, that's, that's what he says about what happened with him in Vietnam. And you, you don't lose till you quit. And for our industry, you don't lose till you quit. And, and we can't quit because life goes on. Don't quit. There it is. Well, on that note, to all, we say thank you and good 